0: Welcome, everyone, to an ad hoc COVID-19 episode of 26.1 AI Podcast. Today, we have Andrew Satz, CEO and founder of Evolve. He's got an interesting deal with a pharmaceutical company in trying to solve COVID-19. Hello, Andrew. Hey, Don. Hey, Brian. Welcome, Andrew. Andrew. Maybe a good point to start out is maybe explaining Evolve and leading into your um, relationship with Immunoprecise Antibody.
1: Yes. So um, Evolve, um, our company is an AI-based technology company that is focusing on accelerating the speed at which drugs or therapeutics uh, reach those in need. Um, you know the it the, usually there's studies that show it takes uh, 10 to 15 years for a drug to get to go from when it's first started to getting approved and in the market. And so We think that takes that's a really long time and heavily contributes to why drugs are so expensive. Um, so really trying to help us, using technology, AI, machine learning, all the different computational tools to accelerate that so that we can, you know, in our case, what we try to do is fail, fail do all the failure of the laboratory experiments in the computer as much as possible so that we reduce the likelihood of failure in the laboratory.
2: Um, and we just got, we had the opportunity to talk with Brett yesterday to your business partner, and he got pretty deep on the technology, but through your own words, what is it that you guys are, what value are you adding, especially in this, you know, urgent time?
1: Um, so... Usually in the in the part of the drug discovery process that we're part of, that we're that we're working on, and we're trying to uh, that we work to recreate with technology, that process takes about four to five years. Uh, it's full of t- failures; i a ninety percent failure rate. So we're trying to recreate. We work to recreate that portion of the process, which is the going from discovery, validation, and optimization. Um, that process, as I said, takes about four to five years. And on average, considering all the failure, all the time that's spent, is about a half a billion dollars. And we're trying to turn that into less than a year and less than $10 million. So, you know, if we can accelerate that part, we can really push the speed at which those drugs go right into a, an animal study that would allow one that will allow um, a company to go right into human studies. So now you can really shorten that time where you can get right into patients. It, what we're hoping for is in less than a year. Um, and and potentially faster. Right now, the regulatory environment has become, uh, the FDA just announced today that they're really accelerating the speed at which they're reviewing things. So what would normally have taken 30 days uh, in the regular environment, they're doing that in less than 24 hours. So um, with regards to our relationship with Immunoprecise, so we do all this work inside the lab, we do all this uh, computational work but once we're done with that and we generate the, these, the drug, the sequences, the gene, the gene sequences of the drugs, somebody actually has to make those and test them to see whether they're working well, whether they express well, how well they're going to work in the you know, do all the laboratory tests. And that's what our partner does at Immunoprecise. They're specialized in antibodies, which is the type of drugs that we focus on currently.
2: And how do you get uh, connected with IPA? Was that, you know, through your, uh, through your business connections or how did that happen? And how do you go to a place like that and convince them to start looking at your output?
1: So, um, Brett and I, uh, Brett, my partner and I were, um, we were working together doing, uh, AI consulting work for some, uh, pharma company. And, um, through working with them, we actually met the CEO of Immunoprecise. And they were very interested in, uh, at that, at that point, because they're, they're what's called a contract research organization. So pharma companies hire them to do research. Um, and so they were very interested in applying AI, but because they're a biology company and not a technology company, they started talking to us, uh, Brett, Brett and I as data scientists. And so we started diving into that space and that's how we met them. Um, and then once we, f- um, Built that first version of our technology and validated it. We went back to them to sort of show them what we had done. Um, well, not sort of to show them what we had done, um, and they were very they were very impressed by what we had accomplished, considering the fact that neither Brett nor I come from a biology background. So, um, and that's how we got in got with them. They wanted to. Then, at the same exact time, the coronavirus hit. So we're like so. the the whole biotech community, like not just us, but like the entire biotech community has coalesced around trying to solve this, the coronavirus. And so we're just one of the many cogs that are doing that.
0: You reaching the uh, CEO, though, that's really interesting. I mean, one of the um, attempts Brian and I are trying to do is get more exposure to the sea levels and get them understanding what's possible with AI? Yeah. Can you go a little deeper into the CEO and how their response to you resulted in this collaboration? Because I, I don't think that's typical CEO of a CRO or a pharma company.
1: Yeah. I mean, in general, most CEOs don't like, I I think most, um, well, let me backtrack. There was a study done a few years ago by McKinsey that said that there's going to be a Like a some two point one million or two million shortage, or I don't know eight hundred thousand shortage in number of people that actually have the skills to do data scientists. The bigger number was the number of leaders or managers or people that sitting in leadership that understood the application of AI and data science. Um, I think that number was like three or four times the size of the actual people that can do it, Um, and that is the that is the sort of um, problem that we deal with. In general, uh, dealing with AI, because I think people have this mystery—it's sort of a mystery to people about what it actually can do.
2: Well, even in your use case, it sounds like that, and Brett was leading to this a little bit yesterday. Is that the process? Well, you're using—you know—you're using the cloud. It sounds like it sounds like you're using AWS. You're using some biological software specialized in it. You're using traditional machine learning and, you know, potentially reinforcement learning, and you're getting some speed ups on it. But what is the challenge with validation of the models?
1: Yeah, the, the, so the validation of the models, is it's very expensive to validate the models. Um, because whatever the model, whatever the output is, so think about like from a generative standpoint, we're doing a generative, for all intents and purposes, we're doing a generative model. How do you validate whether or not it's right? Well, the only way you can validate in a way that the, the current life science community will trust is in the laboratory, but that's very expensive, right? It costs an average of let's say a thousand to $4,000 to make any single one of the, the antibodies that are generated and test them. So if we our algorithms, you know, they generate millions and then we screen them down to let's say a few thousand and you multiply those few thousand times a thousand dollars each and you can see that it's very expensive to validate. We try to we've we've done validation computationally, so like using existing experimental results as a way to validate. But even using the existing experimental results to validate our algorithms, it's not enough for the life science community. So they want to see that wet lab validation.
2: They want to see a wet lab validation, but also it sounds like there's quite a bit of focus on the filters to get to that subset. Um, can you speak a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I don't, th- that, for us, that's actually more for on our end, right? When we get that data about those laboratory results, we can then use that to tune our algorithm and make it better. Um, but the filters themselves uh, are a way to, y- we've computationalized some of the rules of biology. So some of the, like something very simple would be to say, will the drug that we're generating function at some temperature. So like between 90 and 108 degrees. If if it breaks down between 90 and 108 degrees, it's not gonna work in the human body. So that's the filter that we're using. Uh, Those are very well studied. These are all chemical characteristics. These are physical, chemical. I mean, the, the stuff that we're, like the rules that we are used, that we're computationalizing, these were invented in the 80s and the 90s. But that's not enough. So even if you have that information, it's one of a whole host of features about the drugs themselves that we need to know about as a way to screen them. So, and in in general, the pharma industry and the life sciences industry really cares about results. They're so used to failure. I mean, the failure rate in pharma is 95%. So they're so used to failure. And there's been a lot of, historically, a lot of failure in in computational, what's called in silico modeling. Um, There's been a lot of failure historically. So there's a lot of distrust behind it already. If you think about it, like, you know, AI is supposed to solve all these problems, you know, for many, many, many years, it was supposed to do a lot of stuff, and it didn't, it didn't live up to its hype. Um, And so that exists in life sciences.
0: We should introduce some of the uh, wet lab folks to uh, material scientists who do semiconductors since uh, the normal production failure rate is pretty high on wafers. They might have a lot to commiserate about
1: yeah i mean i think that there's that the challenge of like of the fact that, that there's a resistance in addition to the change in general like it doesn't i'm not talking about just life scientists just humans as a whole there's that resistance to change and then prove prove it right everyone wants to say prove it prove that what you have and when scientists are inherently skeptical uh so that skepticism is also what precludes the ability to get ai in the door so everybody wants to see results as soon as we have results you know it changes the dialogue um, but again then you also go back to the the question of the ceos there's a very funny i mean a, a very like funny joke for for us as tech people that you know when we're talking to investors and executives we say ai when we're when we're recruiting people we say machine learning and when we're actually doing the work we say regression So like, you know, it it also, it totally depends on someone's particular technical expertise on what you can talk to them about, Uh, because you you don't wanna be talking about, you know, deep generative reinforcement learning to somebody who doesn't even know what that, what any of those terms mean, any more than I wanna be talking, you know, I'm gonna be talking to you about, you know, binding affinity and thermostability, right? Which are biological terms that will not really make sense to you if you don't really spend some time yeah
2: and and you kind of both came from you and Brett included, came from what what appears to be more economics or financial backgrounds and pivoted into biology. Uh, it looks like. can you talk more about that?
1: Yeah, so I actually I mean I came from the 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 insurance industry, but on the health side. So I was doing uh, a lot of risk management in, in the health, not in health insurance, but in a subdomain of health insurance with workers comp insurance. Um, so I knew quite a bit about the insurance field and the health industry, healthcare and the health industry. Um, Brett, on the other hand, came from the, from the, I was doing healthcare risk management. Brett came the from the finance industry. He was working at, um, uh, Price Waterhouse. Um, we actually met while studying, uh, data science at Columbia and, uh, you know, one you know, so quick background. My mom has been sick since I was a kid. I mean, multiple sclerosis, mental illness, cancer, and all the adverse effects, effects of medication that come along with that. Um, and so, and Brett's um, Brett's family, he he, was experiencing some um, health issues in his own family with somebody that he loved very deeply. So you know, for us, we both had opportunities to go into tech or finance because that's what, those are two of the big ones that recruit data scientists, but really the health of our loved ones, we had this sort of shared vision and we really wanted to use the tools of data science to have a broader impact on the health of humanity.
2: So- yeah, and so now you've pivoted to doing, not just making money on it, but doing good, it sounds like. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, that's the, that's the whole mission of our company. So um, I say this to people all the time. Like we, um, th- the whole purpose of our company is to accelerate the speed at which healing reaches those in need and when I say those in need, I'm not just talking about the people who are sick, but also the people who surround them, right? Their loved ones who are watching those individuals be sick. So can we accelerate the speed at which that's helping everybody who's in need around health? Um, and that's the core mission of our company. Uh,
2: so what about the um, the other side of AI and how it's being used? Let's talk about for a precautionary sort of thing is that there's a lot of fear about it out there. Let's face that. and. What are your thoughts about is there is there anything to be afraid of? Is there anything to worry about from either ethical or, or even biological things that can be done to uh, evil with I know you're on the good side, but what's the evil side?
1: There is like like any tool, it can be used for good or evil. I mean, we talk about the fact that, you know, um, I, I kept I said it earlier, data science. A.I. Is, a, is like a hammer and a and a screwdriver. You can use it to build. You can use it for other things that are not so good, you know, attacking somebody. So I really think it depends on who actually has control of the tools. I think that there are also unintended consequences, and we try to be aware of the biases that are in the data um, that that are that are available. So I think that's it's you know there is there is a reason to fear a tool because of the person that uses it. It's like the the question of like it goes all goes back to that sort of question: is it the is it guns kill people or people kill people? Right? Well. It's the, the combination. Um, and so there are reasons to be afraid of AI. There are also reasons to be very hopeful about what AI can do to help humanity. Even with what we do, right? There's, all, there's a possibility of taking the technology we're building and using it in a way that may be considered unethical. And we're trying to keep... We, we've, we're very thoughtful, very thoughtful about what we're doing and whether it's doing it for the, for the positive of humanity.
2: Is there um, anything that inadvertently could happen in... Uh, in medication research where you I don't know uh, increase the chances of mutation of a virus like take Corona for instance is there anything like that going on that we should be afraid of or is that just far shot
1: uh, probably uh, I'm not aware of it but I wouldn't I would not I, I wouldn't put it past some of the governments of the world um, to be doing research uh, to effectually use these use diseases as weapons um, there is a whole, area that's like uh in in um, in the government that's actually designed for medical countermeasures against chemical and biological attacks so if there are then you know you could be using them There could be using them for that but i try to really really try to focus i try to focus all my time on how to do positivity i mean and then also um reduce the bias there's some interesting things going on in terms of bias somebody told me this really cool story that i was like wow that's really cool and in terms of bias um, so they were training machines or AI to read CT scans and, um, and for some reason in St. Louis, their algorithms weren't working. Now, St. Louis is apparently one of the, uh, murder capitals of the United States. And so the, the thing was that the, so being the murder capital of the United States, it also has a lot of people who've had, uh, gunshot wounds. So the mach- because the organs move when people have sh- gunshots, like the machine wasn't recognizing what was going on because it was just very unique for that area. So there was bias. The machine had the machine had a bias and it didn't couldn't understand those individuals. So, um, and that's just one example of bias in like the, the you know the healthcare. But you can also take the fact of in general, like the industry as a whole the pharma industry as a whole, in terms of how clinical trials are run, there is a lot of bias in in that. And so how do we use that? How do we, how can we use um, computational sciences to sort of level the playing field uh, in terms of not having bias? Because a clinical trial could have a a very low percentage of minority representation. Um, And so if it does, then that means that it may not, that this drug may not transfer well to that minority population.
0: Getting back to COVID 19, for the work you're doing for Immunoprecise, does that include exploring existing antibiotics? Uh, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, explore existing antibodies and seeing their effectiveness?
1: No. So, um, no, we, we work on novel drug discovery. Um, so there's basically three areas there where I mean, there's probably a lot more, in it, but three primary areas where AI is being applied to the drug discovery space. Um, and so uh, in the one case, there's what's called drug repurposing, which I think is what you were asking about. So taking existing drugs and seeing if they'll work against a new or, or, or novel or a disease, not even a new disease, just a disease. Uh, whether it's cancer or uh, autoimmune disorders or whatever. I mean, uh, infectious diseases like COVID. Um, so that's one. And that was probably the, the, the biggest use early on. There's um, the application of AI for drug discovery itself, and that's broken into two parts. There's small molecules. Um, from a 50,000-foot view, small molecules, you could assume that you just consider them to be chemicals, right? So like aspirin or chemotherapy. And so uh, those are smaller items. And then you have biologics, which is what we're focused on, and antibodies are a type of biologic drug. Um, Those are drugs that come from living things. They're much bigger. Uh, When I say much bigger, I mean significantly larger. So let's say a a small molecule might, just for the example, just a simple example, might be like carbon, 20 carbons, 20 hydrogens, 20 nitrogens. In the case of of an antibody, it's like 8,000 carbons, 14,000 hydrogens, you know, like 20,000 nitrogens. And I mean, uh, the numbers are varied. So you can see there's a different, you have to take a different approach to those different problems. So in the case of what we're doing with our collaborator, Immunoprecise, is that we're trying to discover novel drugs for the novel coronavirus. And part of the rationale behind it is it's a novel disease. So we could try to repurpose some of the existing drugs for this novel disease. uh, But because it's so new, I mean, coronaviruses are younger than humans. They evolved after humans were, Existed so that's part of the reason we don't have this resistance to it. So the idea is is that well, if we're trying to target other diseases, maybe that won't work. We should really try to focus on this specific disease.
2: Were you surprised when this coronavirus hit?
1: No, not at all. Um, I'm of the opinion that the we're going to see more and more of these as we continue to as we as humans continue to impact the environment. Um, we're going to see and interact in the environment in new ways. We're going to see more of these types of diseases popping up over time. So I I thought this was inevitable. Um, I'm, um, yeah, I wasn't
2: surprised. I'm, is there something we should have done? Is there something that we, you think we will do now from lessons from this episode?
1: Oh. I absolutely think that we will te- definitely respond. I mean, I think it'll be like, uh, my view is that it'll be the equivalent of like, the TSA was to September 11th, we'll have some new entity, that, a new set of parameters or like the Patriot Act, right, to the September 11th. This is like, this is our September, this is the next September 11th that's gonna really shift the way that people behave um, from a, from a resp- like a preparedness standpoint, because I don't think that we can actually know what's gonna come next in terms of the novel diseases. What we're trying to do on our end is the coronavirus, uh, this one, this SARS and the previous SARS uh, bound to the body in the same way. So what we're trying to do is see if there's a way that we can uh, create a medicine, uh, a type of therapy that could um, go out to help prevent the next coronavirus if it behaves in the same way. But then there's all sorts of diseases like there's hantaviruses, there's the AIDS virus, there's Zika virus, they're all different in the way that they look, the shape, the way that they act in the body, the way that they bind, the way that they you know, metabolize, all sorts of different things. So we can probably use a lot of the existing viruses as methods to sort of help prevent future virus, to help, uh, not prevent, to help treat future viruses. But vaccination is going to be, you know, it's, it's vaccines are a whole other area that we can't really, can't really prepare for. It's, it's really hard to do.
0: For, right. many, for many startup founders, they're trying to create moats and stiff arm any potential competitors from getting into the space. We should have more people working
1: on this problem. We'd love for those individuals who are actually interested in doing this problem to work with us uh, to collaborate, um, if we can help build that next generation of scientists that are doing this kind of work. Um, yeah, so like uh, our interest would be like, can you, do you want to collaborate or join with us on this mission? Um, rather than saying, do we want to stop you from going on that mission?
2: Do you see any, uh, public disagreement with the idea of things like vaccines? I've I've seen that in the news a bit. What are your thoughts as a practitioner and someone in the business? Do you think it's valid to be fearful of vaccines? Or do you think perhaps, uh, they, you know, they're obviously serving a purpose here. So, um. OK, so I have two sides to
1: this. Um, I get why people would be afraid of vaccines. In general, anything that you put into your body as a foreign substance has the potential to have negative side effects, whether it's a vaccine or aspirin or, or even some of the food that we eat, right? Um, that being said, I think it's a mistake not to vaccinate. Because the risk on the other side is just so much worse than the risk of what has consistently been shown to be be safe in most in the vast majority of people, right? There are exceptions, right? So then you can have there are exceptions, but I think that it's a it, the the it's not a, it, it's not scientifically there's no scientific basis. I think what people are doing is saying, oh well, there's that one person who got sick off the vaccine, everybody's going to get sick off the vaccine. But what they're not looking at is the billions of other people who did not get sick from the vaccine. They're just looking at that one story. And so like, if you only focus on the bad news, you're obviously going to see things as being a bad thing. Um, but again, anybody who is saying vaccines are 100% safe is also... Um, not doing that thing that you know they're they're not recognizing that there is a there there is a risk there as well.
0: Andrew, you're a great community organizer, and from what I observed with what you did with the entrepreneurship group at Columbia, you put on an amazing slate of programming. With uh, just don't know how you even did that. I, I'm wondering for founders attacking the space that you're attacking? What's that population look like? Are you connected with them? Um, Do you know? Who's who in that space?
1: Yeah, so we know who they are, like, we, we've done a real deep analysis of the industry. And we know who the for a lot of the individuals are not all of them, you know, because there's a lot of them that are in stealth mode, or maybe they're, you know, PhDs, postdocs, or researchers at a university who may have been doing something on the side. Um, we're not, we're so busy building that we're not spending a lot of time engaging. And that, you know, that's something that we're trying to change now. We brought on a a whole team around that. I should comment on about the fact that like how we did that at Columbia was, it wasn't me, it was like the team, right? It was, you know, just helping provide some guidance and leadership. That was it. Like I am a servant leader. I did whatever I could to help them maximize that.
2: well, uh, Andrew, I, I really enjoyed listening to you, and it kind of connects the dots with the business side with Brett. With Brett said he was very deep on the technology side, so it's a it's really refreshing to have this voice of reason, and very timely to, to have you on our podcast. Is there any way that our guests could reach out to you if they want to, you know, uh, collaborate or just you know throw some ideas off you or you know just network?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, probably the easiest way is just to find me on LinkedIn and you can send me, anybody can send me a message that they want, uh, if they want to contact, you know, I think LinkedIn lets you, uh, if you request somebody, you can just add a short note, um, and I generally respond to those types of things. I, I, I try to spend about half an hour a day on LinkedIn in the morning. So my, my first name is Andrew, which I think hopefully everybody knows how to spell. My last name is just four letters, S is in Sam, A is in Apple, T is in Tom, Z is in zebra um and you just find me on linkedin that's probably the best way to get a hold of me